Good morning, everyone. Let me add my thanks for the for the Christ service once again. I've loved this weekend, and particularly I've had a wonderful time, probably the best time I've had with uh, Mackenzie since she was born, but I've had a newfound respect for single parents as well. Uh, it's wonderful, but um, there's a difference between three days and a lifetime, and how single parents get a lot of things done, I don't know, but... Um, it's a wonderful blessing having having, having kids. Uh, Sarah's had a wonderful weekend. She's down at Marucci Door uh, for her birthday, if you didn't know. And they had big storms there last night. So when they came home from, from going out, they had to the, no lifts and went up the stairs up to the 13th floor. So special times for them. <laughs> and then when she's thinking, perfect night, sleep, no kids. Apparently there was a big party next door. And despite various phone calls, they didn't be quiet till 2 o'clock. Close enough, good enough. They got the no kids bit. Okay, let's open up in prayer as we finally wrap up our series through the book of Exodus. Heavenly Father, uh, it is such a joy to to be amongst your people. It's, It's such a joy to be called your children. Lord, we all know how much we don't deserve to to be in a relationship with the the perfect and holy God. Uh, But Lord, we thank you that it was part of your plan even before the foundations of the world. Uh, that you would choose a people in Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, help us, even as we look at some very familiar truths uh, this morning, as we contemplate things regarding the gospel, ne- let us to never uh, become familiar with or, or start to think of these things as common, of what Christ has done to deal with our sin, and not only to deal with our sin, but what you have promised for our future. Lord, we want to be a people who are continuing to grow and to become more like your son, Jesus Christ, which is part of your plan for us. And Lord, we pray that uh, this morning that you would work through me by your spirit and that the the message which comes from you would would work in the hearts of everyone here, myself included, uh, that we might be changed to love you and to to be a good witness to you in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's three months since the AFL season's going, and you're like, I really miss it. Steve hasn't given me a good St Kilda reference in a sermon for a while. Well, all of your Christmases have come at once. I've got one more before the year's out. Now, if you've been here for any point in time, you've you've suffered along with the fact that I love AFL. In particular, I, I like the St Kilda Football Club. But one thing I noticed, when you move to Queensland, people aren't really a big fan. Many of you know that last year that I had tickets for games down to the Gold Coast and I couldn't give tickets away. Uh, Essie, you might know that it was um, Phil, I discovered of St Kilda supporters, so uh, Phil Moore and I, we went down to the game and with another friend he had through the university. But even you don't get the stuff on TV up here. So I've got a, here I'll get this little set up, I've got my phone where I can stream it, then I'll stream that to my telly. That's my desperate measures that I go to. But we moved up from Victoria and one thing I noticed, when you go to a game in Melbourne, say if it was a game against Perth or something like that, there are people who go to every single game in the, in the country, wherever it is. And if you live in Perth or in Fremantle, then you're probably travelling a lot. And you think, that's commitment. There's no way I'm going to travel all the way around Australia to see St Kilda play every week, apart from the fact that the result will probably be very disappointing. I'm not going to take on the motto, wherever the saints will go, I will go. What a waste of time. How stupid that would be. 
I can't imagine Sarah would be that impressed either. But when we look at these final four verses, if we're finishing off the book of Exodus, we see uh, wherever you go, I will go, that is worthwhile. That isn't a waste of time. That is something that is worth investing in. It's taken us 21 sermons to get to the end of the book of Exodus. It's the largest book of the Bible I've ever preached through in its entirety. Hello, I believe Esther's done the whole Bible this year, so he's ahead of me in that regard. But because it's a final sermon, slightly different structure. Firstly, we're going to look at the gospel as we've seen it portrayed throughout Exodus as we've gone through the book. We're going to look at God's glory coming to his people. And lastly, verses 36 to 38, uh, following God on a daily basis. One of the things that we said right from the beginning, Exodus is kind of like the gospel of the Old Testament. It begins where you see a people who are in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. And it's not necessarily even because of something that they've done. It just happened that if you were born there, if you were an Israelite, it's what you inherited. You had no say in it. Just by being born, they were born into slavery. And not only were they born into slavery, they had nothing by way of means of getting themselves out of it. But the good thing is that we've got the whole Bible. And we can just flick back to Genesis chapter 15, which the people there who were in Egypt at the time didn't have that luxury. And they could see that God had promised to Abraham that this was going to happen. That yes, you would be taken into a foreign land for 430 years and I will redeem you. I will rescue you out of slavery. But he didn't just come and rescue a people. Everything God does is for the display of his glory. Meaning everything he does is so that people would know something of his nature, what he is like, his supreme and awesome character. And so he doesn't just say, okay, 430 years, come and get get them and take them out. We see the display of his awesome power over all of creation. We see 12 different plagues which you find that Pharaoh starts insisting, take these away, our magicians can't do this stuff. But it came to one final plague, the plague of the firstborn, a night when the angel of death passed through and every firstborn child, every firstborn animal was killed that night. Now even for the Israelites, just because they were Israelites didn't mean that they they were automatically saved. The only way that the Israelite firstborn was saved was by trusting in God's provision by the death of a lamb had taken place and that blood placed on their doorpost of their house. Everything God does is for the display of his glory. We saw that back in Exodus chapter 14 at the time when they actually get to a point where they're crossing the Red Sea. Lift up your star, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it and the people of Israel may go through sea on dry land. And I will harden their hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. We saw as we went through that wonderful chapter that God gets glory not only as a God who cares and rescues and saves the people, but a God who is just and a God who is glorified even in the punishment of sinners. Everything God does is an expression of his character. 
He can't do something that is contrary to who he is. But one thing you'll notice, when we went through the book of Exodus, it didn't finish at chapter 14, did it? Exodus didn't finish, people rescued, taken out of Egypt, story over, close your Bible, go home. There's actually quite a number of chapters after it. And we all had a wonderful time going through 11 chapters of reading about the instructions of the tabernacle a few weeks back. But God never just saves, does he? God doesn't just save and say, that's it, done deal. God rescued a people out of slavery. His presence was with them. He provided for them, even when they kept complaining against them. He led them, guided them, provided for them and gave them a set of rules to say, this is how you are to conduct yourself. You are a new people. You are my people. This is how you conduct yourself with one another and this is how you conduct yourself with me. God never just saves. It's not just a rescue. We saw it even when God spoke to Moses back at the burning bush back in chapter 3. He said, but I will be with you And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So he didn't just say, I'm going to get you out of Egypt. God's saving work was to save them out of slavery to Pharaoh to something else. He says, you will serve me on this mountain. So they go from serving Pharaoh where they're treated and oppressed wickedly to serving the living, loving God who created them and who's given them and blessed them with everything for their good. God's redemptive work is always saving from something, but to something far, far better. To use the New Testament language of Colossians 1.13, we have been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that kingdom language is really helpful to understand things. Because when you're talking about a kingdom, you're talking about living underneath the rule of something, aren't you? And so for the Israelites, they've been delivered out of the kingdom where Pharaoh harshly treats them and oppresses them. And they come to be God's own chosen people in relationship with the living, almighty God. Now think of it this way. When you move to a new country and you take up citizenship, Just by that very thing, everything about you changes. Your whole identity changes. You're no longer an Australian. You're whatever country you've you've moved to and you've become the citizen of. But that has implications on your day-to-day. If you're saying, I'm a citizen, this is the kingdom under which I belong, it affects your day-to-day. You've got completely different loyalties, new identity and a whole new lifestyle. And the same for the Israelites. When they've come out of Egypt... Their identity is no longer wrapped up as just being a slave at the disposal of Pharaoh. They are now God's people, chosen and loved, set aside for his purposes to be a light to the Gentiles, told how to relate to one another, radically transformed from day one. God doesn't just leave the scene and say, job done. He saves people for a purpose, that he would be with them, that he would guide them, that he would explain to them what their new identity was, how they relate to one another, how they relate to God. And he says, and that you will be a light to the Gentiles. 
Now for us on the other side of the cross, we have been slave from that, rescued from that slavery to Satan and sin to be called children of God. To be led by him, to be saved by him, to be built up by him, to serve him and to be a witness in the world in which we live. God still saves to provide, lead, instruct how to live as new creation. Now, there's some similarities I want to pick out between Exodus and some of the gospel material too. Both Mark's gospel and the book of Acts kind of finish in an abrupt way of kind of way of saying, this is what's beginning, where are you going to take it from here? And the book of Exodus is pretty similar. Now, when it comes to Mark's gospel, you see, here's the resurrection, they've seen the risen Christ. How are they going to go out from here? In the book of Acts, you see the, the statement that salvation is going to get proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And you know, there's going to be ongoing implications. Exodus finishes in a very similar manner. A people have been redeemed. God has said he's provided the way which he's going to dwell amongst his people. Now it says, what is it going to look like in the ongoing in relationship with him? The first thing we see in verses 34 to 35 is God's glory coming down into the tabernacle. Now, this is something that's been promised. They've been looking forward for a long time when God would dwell amongst his people. Read in verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, this idea of God's presence being visualized in a cloud sense, we've seen that throughout Exodus. We saw that even back in chapter 14, where there they were, the Egyptians were chasing after the Israelites, and God came from in front of the Israelites to between, to protect and to guide his people. We're seen in the giving of the law as Moses went up and down the mountain, a very fit 80-year-old man, up and down, up and down. And last week we saw as he went up and he, he went into the very cloud himself. God's glory filled the tabernacle. But we saw this had an even greater expression when we looked at this in previous weeks and when we looked at the tabernacle. John chapter 1, 14 says, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Literally in the Greek, he tabernacled amongst us. He was the fulfillment of God's presence being amongst his people. And where we saw how that added on to what we see here, it says, and we have beheld his glory, the only begotten of the Father. So some of the things these Old Testament saints would have longed to see. Jesus come, he's tabernacled amongst us and we have beheld his glory. In the coming of Christ, the world saw the glory of God. He dwelt among us to draw sinners to himself. Now, I think sometimes, because 2,000 years, familiarity, we become so familiar with that that it's like, oh yeah, that's just what Jesus does. And we forget how wonderful a salvation we have. When we forget how undeserving we are to be in a relationship with the living God. When we forget the cost which he paid to secure our salvation. Remember how we've gone through the book of Exodus? We've seen there's been times where people have had different levels of access to God. Who's always had the closest access to God? It's been Moses, hasn't it? Like we've seen times where some have come partway up the mountain, but Moses continues to journey all the way to the top. 
But look what happens in the tabernacle as God's, the fullness of his glory dwells in the tabernacle. It says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is Moses. This is the one who's been described as a friend of God, the one who's had the most privileged access to God. And when the fullness of God's glory indwelt the tabernacle, Moses was not able to enter. Now that should challenge us if we think for a moment that we one day will go to be in the presence of God because we've lived a pretty good life. This guy has almost been the hero or the highlight of the book of Exodus and even he cannot enter into the fullness of God's presence. No person can, because of their goodness, by earning it, have the right to enter into the presence of a perfect and holy God. If you're banking on living a pretty good life, doing more good than bad, on that last day you might be in for a very big surprise. And it would be really unloving for me not to point that out. If I left it there, that would be terrible news and it would be a bit of a downer, wouldn't it? But the good news is God has provided the way in which we can stand before him. We can enter into his presence. Not because of something that we've done, but Jesus has come into the world He has died the death that we deserve, that we have earned the consequences or the wages for our sin. And the Bible tells us by trusting in him, his perfect righteousness is put into our account. So at the end of my days, when I stand before God, my confidence isn't going to be I was a pastor of a church. My confidence isn't going to be I went to Bible college or I did this or did that. The only thing that I will stand there with confidence before my God is the righteousness of Christ given to me by faith. His righteousness is perfect. Moses' good life and Moses' things was not enough to enter him into that presence. But I'm sure at this point in time that is what allowed Moses to, to eternally dwell with God. It's interesting too. Moses couldn't enter because God's glory was there. But that's the very term the Bible often uses to speak about our our eternity with him, to enter into glory. That very one thing that Moses couldn't do at that point in time, all who are trusting in Jesus Christ will enter into that glorious inheritance, into the fullness of the glory and the presence of God. So what about all this in between? I've made a few comparisons to the ending of Mark and Acts. But these last couple of verses kind of summarises what it looked like for the rest of their life. Look at verses 36 and 37 with me. Throughout all their journeys, that sounds like a pretty good summary, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. I love those verses. Because we see so many things about the failings of Israel, all the ways in which they fail to trust God. But in terms of this as a summary, it says, if God moved, they moved. If God stayed, they stayed. They knew there was nowhere else to go than be in the very presence of God. That's how much they valued God dwelling amongst them. Never once does it say 
And God set out. And then the people looked around, weighed up the situation, thought, nah. Never once does it say that God remained somewhere. And the people looked around and saw there was something better on the horizon and and set out without him. God's people knew in the presence of God, even when my desires or something might look better, is where I need to be. Jesus' own disciples understood this in a very similar way in John chapter 6. Now, there was, Jesus had given some really hard teaching and some of the people started to abandon Jesus. Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Are you going to leave too? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the eternal, words of eternal life. And they understood, where else can I go? I have the presence of God with me. I'm not going anywhere else. Now, we know that the life of all of the, the apostles didn't end particularly well. All of them suffered greatly. All of them, with the exception of John, were martyred for their faith. But they all said, my relationship with God is pivotal. Where he goes, I will go. Where he leads, I want to go. This is who I am. This is my new identity. This is who I am. This is where I belong. This is the best place I can be. Now, we all know on day-to-day experience, there are times when our heart wants something that we know is outside of the will of God. When we want to go somewhere where we know God doesn't want us going. God never promises that his leading is going to feel good to us. Sometimes it actually feels really uncomfortable. But we need to adopt what the people of Israel and even the disciples think. You are my rock. You are the one, my identity is wrapped up in you. I need nearness to you more than what I, my deceitful heart tells me that I need. And that's kind of the note that Exodus finishes on. Wherever God goes, the people go. If God doesn't move, they stay. They trust that we're in God's presence is where they need to be. Now, we're not going to have a, a cloud following us around. So what do these things mean for us today? We don't have God going by a cloud or a pillar of fire at night. How how are we called to sort of represent, if I said the Exodus is kind of like a foreshadow of the gospel? How is it that we are led today? Because biblically, being led is still a, a mark of what it means to be a Christian. In Romans 8, chapter 14, Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We're actually called to be led by God. It's part of who we are. He's still wanting to lead us and to use us. Now, you might think, oh, that's a really nice kind of one-off verse, but in practical terms, what does that look like? What does it look like to wholeheartedly follow God? And we need to start with one thing. We know that every word of Scripture is given by... by authors as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No, the foundation for all our beliefs and all of our practice is the Scriptures themselves. So on a very simple, basic beginning level, one of the ways in which we are led is to actually become familiar with what God has made known about him, what he calls us to do as he's given us in his Scripture. To listen to what God has to say and to obey it. And as you're reading through the Scripture... Often you'll find that God is showing something 
Or is he pointing you somewhere which is in a very different place than where you currently are? And if God is showing you that this is where he is, as God's people, that should be the desire of our heart. This is where I should want to be. We should move. Now, some things are clear as day when you read through them, aren't they? Some of the things, God has given a very explicit command and you've got no choice. You've really got two choices, haven't you? You either obey or you rebel against God. There's sometimes they're that clear, clearly stated. But what about all the stuff that's not so black and white? Romans chapter 12 is probably a very um, helpful guide in, with this regard. Familiar verses, I'm sure. I appeal with you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see the connection that Paul makes there? Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Renew your mind, not according to the patterns of this world, but according to the thoughts of God, which we have everything we need for life and godliness in the Scriptures. So we need to get to know and understand them. He says, you give yourself freely to God and wholeheartedly to God. You have your mind transformed as you study the things, the, the mind of God and his word. He says, that'll help you to understand and make clear what is the will of God, even in things that may not have explicit commands tied to them. But this discerning is kind of like the understanding or visualising the clouds seeing it move. But just because the Israelites saw the cloud move wasn't the end of the goal, was it? They had to go with it. Same as too, when we are discerning, we see through the scriptures that God is leading us towards something or correcting us in something. We don't just need to discern and say, oh, I believe this to be the right doctrine. We are called to live lives worthy of the gospel, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You know how it sometimes happens? You're reading through the scriptures and God just places something on your heart with a very, very real burden. And God's saying, this is where I want to take you. Will you come with me? Will you proclaim, this is my identity, this is where I need to be, despite what looks better to me, this is who I am. Or you believe the deceitful heart that says, this way is easier, this is what I'm comfortable with. When you're spending time in prayer, do you just talk to God, amen, and off? Imagine how annoyed you'd all be if that's how I conducted my conversations with you. I walked up, said my bit, got out. Never, never let you talk anything back in return. God desires to speak to us. Now, I need to say when I make a statement like that, God is never going to say something in addition or contrary to the word. I'm not going, saying that you should expect some new revelation telling you um, something contradictory to his word. I need to clarify that there. But what I want to ask you this morning, because I imagine there probably is, is there something that God has continually been putting a burden on your heart that you probably still haven't acted upon? For the majority of my Christian life, when someone was to say something like that, it's probably not that hard to think of something. Now, a number of you know in the last couple of weeks, um, I've been here now for 
getting close to two years. And because I've moved up and I'm working in a, in a church, my natural people I connect with are, are Christians within a church. And God has placed that real burden on me for much longer than I would like to admit. Those in my community group would know about this as I've raised it for a prayer point. To find ways to engage, particularly with the local neighbourhood, understanding that God has appointed my days and the, the boundaries of where I live. And even though that's been the conviction of my heart for well over a year, I've only actually started doing something about that in the last week. Now, I kept telling myself, you know, I'm just too busy, I haven't got time for that, or, or they're not going to want someone coming to see them. And these lies that I've been feeding myself for all of that time, I can't tell you how much of a joy it has been to meet and to get my neighbours and, and so how surprised they've been, how well received it's been. Now, we've had people who've opened up into all sorts of conversations that I wouldn't probably have with someone who'd just come to my door. Some people talking about some very real needs and things that are going on in their life. People just opening up the door to someone they didn't know coming in for a coffee. People who are just lonely and who just want to meet together with other people. So if God has placed something on your heart and you know what it is and you know that you've kept putting it off, can I ask you why? I remember one thing I was challenged on at one point, well, it's just when I was reading through Genesis, and you get to Genesis chapter 12, and God says to, Ma- to Abraham, I want you to leave your, leave your family and go with me to this place, wherever that is. The next verse says, so Abraham went. And I was challenged by that, because he's asked to leave behind some things that are really, really special to him to follow God. Without reservation, he goes. As we ponder why we may not have followed God in some of the things that he's placed on our heart, I think if I was to say what our reasons are, most of the time we'd say, it's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. It might require a bit of sacrifice. Remember what Jesus said, whoever wants to follow me must take up his cross and deny himself. The Christian life is about self-denial. It's not about being selfish. That's what we were beforehand. That was our identity, to get everything for ourselves. I said, I've put this thing off for ages. Now I think I'm, now I'm a shy kind of person going door to door. It's been a wonderful blessing and it's the beginning of many um, great relationships with people in our neighbourhood. It would be wonderful if we could see some of those come along next week. I'm going to invite them. We're having a, a service uh, particularly focused from people who don't know Jesus and I'm hoping to have a number of those come along with me next week. So hopefully that will be the case. But as we think about whatever it is, if God has laid something on our heart, God's leading is always for our good and for his glory. I want you to throw away the lies that you've got in your mind, in your heart. If God has placed something in your heart, will you say, I will follow? I'm going to just give you a a very short prayer. Then we're going to have just a quiet time of prayer just to to engage with God on this thing. It was a prayer from Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard, which I really liked a long time ago. It just says, your will, nothing less, nothing else. Amen. I probably could have memorised that. As a matter of fact, I, I have memorised it. I even wrote a song which you're never going to hear because I can't sing. 
But we're going to have a quiet time just where we are to, to bring before God, and particularly if there's something that God has laid on our heart, uh, that we would walk in those things. Um, or even in the quietness of this time, God, is there something that you, you are calling me to do? Then I'll close this up in prayer. Lord, we thank you for uh, the great price you you paid uh, that we could be your people. In the words of Paul, we are no longer our own. We belong to you. And that's not a bad thing. We were once a people who lived to do everything that was pleasing in our eyes and in our hearts. But Lord, we have come to know the living God who everything you call us to do is, is what we were created for, is what we were designed for. And even when our mind and our desires might be for everything that is not from you, Lord, we know that you are good and all that you do is for for our good and for your glory. Help us to be a people who are led by your Spirit, to walk in obedience and to know the joy of being your people and being a light in the world in which we live. And to be willing to be used by in whatever capacity you would choose to use us. Lord, we thank you that you would even stoop and to allow a broken people such as ourselves to be used by you for your good purposes. What a privilege and an honour that is. And Lord, may we use the days that we have until we see you face to face. To seek after you. To be led and guided by you to walk in obedience before you, to love those who are around us, to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to show and to engage with those who do not yet know you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.